0: Well, we have seen in our study of the book of Job at this point that the Lord has put Job in Satan's hand. The only restriction placed upon Satan is that he cannot take his life. And uh, we've talked about just even contemplating that concept is a staggering idea that there is nothing that Satan cannot do to Job except cannot kill him. That's it. And so Job has lost his possessions. Job has lost his wealth. His 10 children are dead. He has boils and sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. His wife tells him there's no reason to continue living a righteous and blameless life that he should curse God and die. And he came then to chapter 2 and verse 10. And we read in all this, Job did not sin with his lips we would think this would be the end of the account, right? Well done, Job. We were ready to give him the A-plus at the end of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he is struck even harder than before. And yet still we read glorious words, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so Job has passed the test with flying colors, is what we would say. And our temptation would be to end our story and our study of job now. I think it 's this kind of the default. He did it, and so let 's be like job let 's be faithful and endure like job, and yet the story 's not remotely over. You notice in your Bible, we didn't even finish chapter two. Nevertheless, even 40 more chapters after that are still sitting here to tell us about suffering and trials and how God runs the world. And so what we're going to do then this evening is take on the rest of chapter two and then take a step back and consider some of the things that we have learned from these first two chapters before we start moving into the discourses of Job and the three friends and all that they then go into talking about as they try to explain God and try to explain Job's circumstances. But there are some critical messages that are seen in these two chapters that help us prepare for chapters 3 to 42. So if you have your Bibles, then we are in Job chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading then in verse 11. Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance... They did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. What a picture now that's given to us. It is interesting that as this narrative closes, and we've noted the first two chapters, how in the text it's written differently than chapters 3 to 42, verse 6, where it's all going to be poetry here. We're still in this final narrative and these final three verses that give us this narrative about these three friends. We're given the names of the three friends. You'll get to know them very well. They're going to talk an awful lot in this book. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are Job's friends. And what is interesting is that we are told where they come from. Now, in regards to Bildad and Zophar, those places we really don't know much about. But in regards to Eliphaz, we know Timu. Temon is considered a place of wisdom. It is in Eden. And we have places in the Scriptures like Jeremiah 49 and verse 7, as well as Obadiah 8 and 9 that tell us that... Teman and Edom were considered the renowned places of wisdom. This is where wisdom dwelled. If you wanted knowledge and understanding and wisdom, then Teman and Edom, that would be the place to go. And so what we are reading here is that wisdom is coming with these three friends. That's what's being pictured for us as these three friends are about to arrive. And so wisdom is going to come and we would get a sense of hope as we would read this. And not only do we have a sense of hope, but I want you to notice the picture that's given of the reason why they are coming. It's told us at the end of verse 11 that they made an appointment together to come to show sympathy and to comfort him. And so their purpose is also important. They get news of what has happened to Job. And the three friends then contact each other and say, we all need to meet at Job's place on X day. And we'll all go there to talk to him so that we can comfort him and give him sympathy and encouragement and help because he's been absolutely devastated. So again, I want you to see a positive picture in the role of the three friends. They are pictured as wisdom is coming with them and their purpose is not to hurt Job. Their purpose is not to criticize Job. Their purpose is not to harm Job. They are talking to each other and saying, let us go comfort Job. Let us sympathize with Job. He needs our help and he is a friend of ours. And then not only that, I think what you see then in verse 12 is perhaps the most startling of all, we will get a few faint pictures of what Job looks like. From time to time, Job will speak of his physical appearance. And it's hard to visualize exactly what he looks like. But when you read the words that in verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Just to take in a sense of how badly Satan has afflicted Job, that it is of such physical suffering and distress that these three friends who take it upon themselves to come to comfort Job, as they begin to approach in the distance, you can imagine them looking and going, that can't be Job. And another one going, that's Job. We don't even recognize him. He doesn't even look like Job because he has been so struck down. And notice this is what seems to initiate what they do in verse 12. They raise their voices and wept. They tear their robes. They sprinkle dust on their heads toward heaven. Now now we would read that and go, now that seems awfully unusual, but that was ancient Near Eastern custom. This is conventional grieving. What they are doing right now is showing solidarity with Job and they are sympathizing with him. They are showing grief with him. And so they are raising their... Voices and they are weeping aloud, then they tear their clothing and they sprinkle the dust on their heads, and they're showing, We are here with you. Remember, we last saw Job sitting just on the ash pile outside the city, there, scraping himself for out of the pain and misery that he's in. And so, these three friends arrive and they come to him, and they are showing grief along with him. Not only that, we're told there in verse 13, it says they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word with him. And we read that and we might really be bothered that for seven days they didn't say a word to him and go, now that doesn't seem very nice. I would want you to say something right away. But it's important that we understand culture and context. That also is a cultural thing that you did. That you would sit there in silence and allow the afflicted one to speak first, which is how the book of Job opens, is not until Job speaks first that these three friends will then interact with him. And so this is also conventional grief. They sit there in silence and you see Ezekiel even do that. When he first goes to prophesy to those who are over there in Babylon by the river Kebar. you notice it tells us that for seven days he sat there as well before then he initiates his prophecy. So this is how you mourn. This is how you grieve. And so there is nothing that we are reading about so far in, regards of these three friends that would suggest anything harmful or anything sinister they are comforting Job they are sympathizing with Job they are engaging in everything that you would hope your three best friends would do for you if you were in immense suffering This is how the readers would have heard what is about these three friends. They would have heard they're doing everything appropriate to grieving protocol. And that's what we would want ourselves. Whatever you would have wanted during your mourning and suffering and grieving, these three friends are doing that. And so that is the picture that is given to us as we see what these three friends are about to do. So that sets up such an interesting refrain for the book when we now engage what these three friends will say. And what Job says is that you are left here at the end of chapter 2 on this teetering point of thinking, well, these three friends are going to help. They're here to comfort, they're here for sympathy, they're here to grieve. They're sitting down with Job in the ashes and throwing the dust on their heads and they're wailing aloud for for Job because of all that he's lost and all that he has suffered. And they sit there silently and they don't try talking to him. They observe the standard seven days of mourning with him. They're doing everything beautifully. And I hope that colors your understanding when you read later on the things that they say that everything looks really beautiful in what they're doing. And yet, things will certainly turn to the bad as we read about what these three friends will say to Job as these cycles will unfold when we get into chapter 3. But with that rounding out chapter 2, I want us to just reflect on a couple of things that I think are really important that we have seen in this book that we haven't been able to talk about much, but are integral to what's about to happen to Job and what is being told to us about Job's life and the things that are uh, happening to him. One of the things that I think is striking that we read about in these first two chapters is this, engagement between God and the accuser. God and Satan in this discussion back and forth over Job And one of the things that is pretty surprising to read about that is instructive to us is that we learn that God is putting limitations on what Satan is able to do to Job. You'll notice back in chapter 1 and verse 12, we see God telling Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. And so here is this boundary that is set up that Satan cannot cross. You only can deal with the things that are not about his health or his flesh, but the things that he possesses. Then again, it happens in chapter 2 in verse 6, where we see God say to Job, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And we begin then just to consider that here is God establishing the boundaries of what can happen during the trials that Job experiences. And I think that's a very important key to what we are going to read about in this book is that we are going to see that God exercises control throughout this trial. That God continues to be in charge of what is happening. He is ruling over the scene and is fully aware of what is happening. And the point for that is very important because we are not going to see that Satan here is operating outside of the knowledge or will or power of God. God has told him, here's what you can do. He has put limitations the first time around. Don't strike him. Then the second time, just don't kill him. But in all of these things, you see God laying out a limitation of what Satan is able to do. The reason why that is so important in our consideration of trials and how God runs the world and our consideration of suffering is sometimes we may have the temptation to picture that the problem of suffering is... Here is Satan and he is afflicting all these righteous people and what God has to do is come in and kind of undo all that. That you have Satan running around as the villain and he's just wiping people out left and right. And that wasn't God's will or God's desire. And so here he is now trying to come in and undo everything that happens or even vice versa. That here is God doing all this good for the world and all this good for the people. But here's that rotten Satan who just kind of keeps messing everything up. And sometimes we put forward this scene this way that, well, what's happening is is just this struggle between God and Satan and it's this tug of war and sometimes, you know, Satan wins a battle but God wins the war and things like that. I want you to consider that that is not what is pictured to us in the Scriptures at all. And it's not pictured here in the book of Job. One of the things that does not happen in this book is that God does not come to Job and say, the whole problem is that Satan guy, and you know, I keep trying to deal with him, and he keeps doing a bunch of bad stuff, but you know, one day in the final judgment, I'll finally judge him and cast him in the lake of fire, and it'll be okay. And we'll finally be rid of him. That's not God's answer. It's not a picture of this problematic tug of war that's going on, and God keeps being foiled by Satan as he does all these things. One of the things that we continue to see is that whatever Satan is doing, he is doing within the constraints of what God is allowing him to do. That is what is set forward here. We have mentioned many times in our Wednesday night study that we see that God is the one who initiates this both times in the discussion. That God is the one who starts this by speaking to the Satan and saying, Have you considered my servant Job? Twice over that happens. And everything that Satan is doing is within those restraints and within those boundaries, within those limitations. There is never a time where Satan has done something and says, God goes, well I told you not to do that, now i got to go fix that. God's ruling. And he is exerting control through the trial. And Satan's only allowed to do what God has prescribed that Satan is allowed to do. I think that's a very important picture for us to understand. Because if that's not the case, and Satan is not operating under the rule of God, the will of God, and the power of God, then we would have to admit that God is not God that Satan is doing whatever he wants and whatever he wills and has no limitation whatsoever and God cannot restrain him and is just trying to undo all the wrong things that happened. And that's not the picture. And it's important that we see Job and listen to what the book is setting up for us when it talks about these limitations. The reason why this is also important is because we see in this very two chapters that while we are very happy to seize on chapter 2 in verse 7 where we are told that Satan afflicts Job, we kind of want to slide over the statements where it says that God afflicted Job. I'm very happy to go with yeah that Satan. He got him. He was bad. He was evil. Bad Satan. Bad. Why did you do that? But I don't want to read where we're told in chapter two, verse three, and dwell at the very end of the book in chapter forty-two, verse eleven, where it says God did this, and that becomes trouble to us because we're all about okay. Satan did the evil. Satan did the bad. He did the trial. But the text is quite plain and quite clear that God was involved and that God even takes accountability, takes responsibility, that God says, I afflicted him. Twice God says, I afflicted him. I did this. And to help with that... I want us to consider that we really probably shouldn't be troubled by that because the scriptures are always talking like that. It's perhaps the most direct here where we just feel it so strongly in the book of Job. But I'm going to just give you a smattering of, of tons and tons of passages. Where it describes that God is doing these kinds of things. If you read what happens with Abraham in regards to the trial that he is given, where he is going to offer up his only son Isaac, we are told there that God tested Abraham. It is not Satan, you know, came up with this wild hair and, you know, good thing Abraham did the right thing. We're told God tested him. And you even recall in the scene, we're told, now I know that you will do all that I've said to do in the covenants and confirmed with Abraham. I tried to fill up the PowerPoint as much as I could on this one. I can't tell you how many times the scriptures say that God tested Israel. That phrase occurs lots of times where it says God tested Israel. God tested them. God tested their hearts. God 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 tested them. God tested them. God tested them. In the wilderness, God is constantly testing them. This is why they don't have food. They don't have water. All these things seem to be happening to the people. And every time we're told God is testing them. In fact, Deuteronomy has a great one in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 where here's God. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That He might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. God always talks like that. And here in Moses' final speech to the people, he says, remember what God was doing for the 40 years in the wilderness. He was humbling you. He was testing you to see if you would keep his commandments. And you know, as it doesn't say, you know, God was just, you know, a bystander and Satan was messing everything up. The Lord tested them. And so over and over again, the scriptures give us this picture that the Lord tests. Now, I will say something strange here, and I recognize it doesn't sound intuitively correct on the surface. But the knowledge of that gives us hope. Knowing that God's hand is involved is supposed to give us hope because it gives us hope in knowing that God is in control of the circumstance, that God is ruling over the trial and that there is nothing that is happening outside of the knowledge of God. That should give us hope. God knows exactly what's going on. It is not as if God goes, I had no idea that you were suffering so much. I'm I'm glad you made me aware of that. He is in control of the circumstance. He is ruling over the trial. He's put the boundaries on Satan. He is testing his people. We are given all of these pictures that God is ruling over your trial, and that is supposed to give us hope through the difficulty. Now, where does the hope lie in that? Not only in terms of his knowledge of what we are going through, and not only because we know that God has limited Satan. But let's bring in what we've been doing the past few Sunday mornings. That one of the biggest reasons we can have hope is because God is love and he loves us. And that's why we can have hope. That what we are learning about God is that he did not send his son to save us only to turn around and destroy us through trials and suffering. That doesn't make a lot of sense. God did not do everything that he could on his part. To ensure our salvation and send his only son to die on a cross only then to decide that he just wants to torment you all the days of your life. That we have a picture of God who is in control of the circumstances, who is aware of what is happening, that there is nothing happening outside of his knowledge. And that Satan is certainly limit, limited by God. That God puts the limitations on what can happen to us. But one of the things that God is constantly talking about, and for sake of time, we don't can't look at all these passages. But you might have a few that just immediately come to your head how often God is saying, faith needs to be tested. James, 1 Peter, tons of places always t- telling us your faith needs to be tested. Faith needs to be tested. Faith needs to be tested. And so here is the book of Job setting up for us. There is hope in trials that God loves us, that God puts limitations, that God knows what's going on. He is in control of the trial, that nothing is happening outside of his knowledge, and that he is aware of all of these things, but that faith does need to be tested. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because when we read about these people in the scriptures like Abraham and Moses, we see them tested and tested and tested and tested. And we come to a man like Job, a man who is blameless, who is upright, who fears God and turns from evil, and he must be tested. And we must be tested. <laughs> this is what brings us then to a passage that we might know very well, and I'd like for you to turn over there, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You might know this one. It's one of the places that has a promise that I think often when we are in trial and suffering, we, we gravitate to this text. And And I think rightly so, because the promise that is contained there is extremely helpful. And what you see the Apostle Paul saying appears to validate exactly what the book of Job is laying out in regards to the dynamic between God and Satan and how he runs the world through trials. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse (laughs) 6. Now, these things occurred as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge the sexual morality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example that they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Stop there for a moment and just recap what he's setting up there. Here he is and he's saying, now here's these things that have occurred to us as an example. These things happen as teaching moments. And he basically then rewinds and talks about the things that happened to Israel. He looks back at the time that they were in the wilderness and says, look at how they failed in these various tests when it came upon them. Here we have... As it was written, the people sat down to eat, drink, they rose up and play. And so we must not indulge in the sexual morality as some of them did. Here's a recounting that looks back to the golden calf. Now the people that immediately reject God there as Moses is gone for more than 30 days. And so now they begin to turn away from God. They begin to engage in sexual morality, and 23,000 of them fall in a day. Verse 9, We must not put Christ to the test. Some of them did were destroyed by serpents. We might remember of that one. And they're grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. And so God sends these poisonous, fiery serpents and begins to kill them because of their complaining. In verse 10, Do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That happens quite a few times. We could talk maybe Korah's rebellion that happened. We could even think of Miriam and Aaron and they're complaining that happened we have all kinds of different pictures of how the people complained and complained and complained and received various judgments and some were even killed like Coran's family being swallowed up in the earth. but notice that verse 11 says these things have happened to serve an example and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Now watch what happens in verse 13. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. So after speaking about the testing of Israel, we already noted how often the scriptures say Israel was tested. Israel was tested. God put them to the test. God put them to the test. And now here is this picture of here are the tests that Israel experienced in the wilderness and they failed the test. And Paul is warning and saying, these things serve as an example to us that we will not fall like they fell. Verses 11 and 12. Don't stumble like they stumbled. And then you are given this promised verse. Now, most translations, many of the translations will read, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. It's important to note, this word gets translated either direction. That's why some translations read trial some read temptation here's how broad this word is it just means to put to the test to prove (laughs) when you read of a temptation or a trial depending upon your English translation in the New Testament it is the same Greek word and it always just means to put to the test to prove and you kind of have to read by context where these temptations are trials. And in our discussions on Wednesday, I've talked about those are pretty much the same thing. Every temptation is a trial and every trial has temptations. These things operate together. And that's why James seems to even speak of it in that way. But I want you to consider the context of what we've read. And this seems to be talking about the testing of Israel and their failure. <clears throat> And so testing and trial should not be excluded from the idea of what is being promised here. It's not just simply there's going to be a temptation in front of you and there's a way to avoid the temptation. But notice that there is a beautiful picture of what God says he is able to do. That there is this promise that is given to us in regards to trials and temptations that they are limited So as to not be beyond what we are able to handle. I think that's one of the beautiful things. God is faithful and he will not allow you or let you to be tempted, tested beyond your strength. This is very much the concept of why we see limitations of what God is doing. That God did not come to save his people only then to allow complete wipeout and just kill everybody on the spot that you are going to experience things and our hope in the testing and our hope in the trial and our hope through temptation, our hope through suffering and difficulty is that God is faithful and that there is nothing that has been given to us that we cannot handle with the help of God. And I know that in the midst of Suffering, temptations, trials, and difficulties. It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that. I don't know that we've ever come into any kind of suffering or trial or difficulty and said, Oh, that's easy. (laughs) I know how to get through that. God is faithful and he's put limits and... This one's a very teeny hurdle that I will just simply walk over and continue on. No trial feels like that. Every trial, every difficulty, every true amount of suffering feels insurmountable. It feels crushing. It feels devastating. Life-altering Ruin is what it feels like. The depths of the darkness of the trial is often the most crushing part. Lord willing, next week we're going to read chapter 3 and we'll be able to identify with the feelings of Job. You want to talk about a man who's walking through darkness. Job chapter 3 is perhaps one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the whole book of Job, if not perhaps the Old Testament. In reading what he says and how he feels, it is the dark night of the soul. And that's what trials feel like. And we read this promise, and that sounds beautiful when things are going great. And it's probably all the worse when you're in the trial and somebody comes up to you and quotes 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Hey, you know, and you go, "Where to punch you. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that it's within your realm to handle. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it's possible to survive this. But there is no testing that has overtaken you that is not common to everyone, for God is faithful. And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out. You can underline, so that you may be able to endure it. The concept of what we are seeing in the book of Job is that Satan cannot act beyond the knowledge and the power of God. That God puts in the limitations, that God puts in the constraints. That Satan does not have free will to do as he pleases and whatever he wants. That Satan has has been bound and God has put the boundaries up of what he is able to do toward people. And the point that God will make in this book that we're going to see again and again is that God is faithful and you can overcome your trial by resting in Him, by looking to His knowledge and understanding His control over the circumstance and going into the trial and going, how is this going to be the testing of my faith? How is God going to be glorified through this? And how will this refine my faith, refine my character, refine my walk with God so that I can be what God wants me to be? This is why James sounds so strange. You would open your sermon by saying, my brothers, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds and you go... no joy here? You must be kidding me. Where is the joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces and then he starts listing all the things this is going to do for you because faith must be tested and that God has put boundaries on these things so that your faith would be tested in the way that a loving father would know how to test. This is the whole idea of what James is talking about. And we'll end with this passage where James talks about Job. James 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Notice what he points out about the prophets. They were examples of suffering. They were examples of patience. Just wait till we get a little further into Jeremiah unbelievable suffering and he says so take them because we consider them blessed because they remain steadfast you have heard of the steadfastness of Job you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful have you ever put those two together you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Okay, yep, we have. Here we are right in the middle of it. Blown away by Job. Two chapters. Unbelievable. How'd he do it? Can't believe what he did. Did not sin. Amazing. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Okay, I think we're getting that right now. Right? Trials of purpose. Faith must be tested. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now there's the disconnect. Right? Right? <laughs> That's where you just unplugged and went, how is he compassionate and merciful? You have seen the steadfastness of Job and you see the purpose of the Lord in Job and you see how God is compassionate and merciful. And I think this is one of the primary ways you see it. Is that God... Rules over trials. He rules over suffering. He is not unaware of what Job is going through. He has put the limitations up to Satan and said, you only can do this and no further. And God knows how this is going to play out and what God needs to do for Job. This is why you get this picture. So be steadfast. See the purpose of God. And know he's compassionate and merciful. James could look at all that we're going to see in the book of Job. And he can draw three quick conclusions about your trials. Don't give up. Stay steadfast. See God's purpose. The testing of your faith produces what we need to become what God wants us to be. And see the compassion and mercy of God. He is not unaware of what you're going through. He loves you. He cares for you. He has put limitations on the trials. And He is there for you every step of the way. Amen. Book of Job. It's going to hurt some of the things we're going to read about. Some of the things that we learn about the challenge of trials. But hold on to these three things that we glean from these first two chapters of Job. That all that we are about to read as it unfolds, God is there. God is ruling over this. He is in charge over this. And that is to give us hope that in your difficulty, in your suffering, and in your trial, God knows He cares. He will carry you through or sing a song, we invite you to come to Jesus to see we have a loving, gracious God who walks with us every step of the way, who gives us hope in trials, that as dark and as difficult as those trials may be, there is nothing that is beyond our strength. For God has put limitations on the things that are happening that Satan would do to us and is responsible and says this and no further. And we can put our hope in God in that. But there's a purpose to testing. I always relate it like this is that when we were in school we all felt like we knew all the answers. I don't need to take the test, teacher. I've got it all figured I know the answers. No need to test me. And then you'd sit down on test day. And then you went, ooh. I didn't know that material like I thought I did. And there is so much truth to that about our spiritual walk. That is often one thing to think that we will be faithful and we will be strong. But faith needs to be tested. And we will see what that makes of us. Will that draw us closer to God? Or will we turn and walk away? I hope you'll see that God is gracious and good, compassionate and merciful. And it would cause you to come to Him with all of your heart. He loves you and cares for you. Be ready to come to Him. Turn away from your sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come and do that now? While we stand and while we sing.